How are we doing? Is, uh, can you hear me? Good. We have to do a sound check. For some reason, I had it in my head this morning that church was at 1030. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, we got here plenty of time, can relax and get ready. And Man, rushing around. Sometimes it works out that way. Is it okay if I move this? We'll leave it over here. So, All right. Well, it's good to see everybody's smiling faces. It's great. To, it's good for, in case you don't know it, and I'm sure Pamela knows it and everybody else knows it, it's nice to see people looking back at you because you kind of wonder, uh, have I lost them? Are they wishing they were somewhere else or so? Well, it's been a, wow, it's been a few weeks, I think, since I've been here. I think January or February, I think, sometime. And uh, it's always good to be here. I don't know about all of you, but I like the rain. So I grew up in, we grew up in northwest Ohio. We had lots of rain. And, uh, but that also meant lots of humidity, which I really don't care for. But, uh, waking up this morning and driving down here in the rain, I was, I felt pretty good about it. I mean, the sun's going to come out, and in a few weeks, if not sooner, we'll be saying, man, I wish it would rain again. <laughs> yeah, or snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no snow. We're not ready yet, huh? Okay. Well, it's good to be with you. Greetings from uh, Windsor, Colorado. And uh, it was raining there as well this morning, so it seems fairly, fairly widespread. This morning I want to talk about a passage um, in Matthew. Uh, the, if you want to open your Bibles to there, we'll... Uh, we'll get to that in a few minutes, but it's Matthew chapter 22. Um, the scripture that I'll be reading in a few minutes is begins at, at verse 34 and goes through verse 40. A little bit of background. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. His triumphal entry has occurred. Um, he begins teaching many parables uh, to uh, his disciples and to those that will listen, and as well as uh, the many who have come uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration and for um, to gather together and celebrate uh, and the coming out of Egypt, as they do yearly. Uh, we know that during this time he has cleansed the temple. He's gone into the temple and he has found that uh, the religious leaders of the day have turned his temple into a, uh, a garage sale, maybe. Um, they're selling all kinds of things at exorbitant prices uh, for the many Jews who have traveled miles and miles and couldn't necessarily bring offerings with them. They were able to buy them uh, in, in order to go and give those offerings, and uh, they were being taken advantage of, and uh, and the temple was being used more as a uh, big yearly 
financial um, push for the for the church to to make lots of money so that they could do uh, what they what they needed to do. So they were taking advantage of people. They had begun or had distorted uh, the religion. They had distorted their faith of the people. They had become faithless and had put. Uh, their efforts into other things. And Jesus saw this and said that you've turned my temple into a den of thieves. And he turns over the tables. Well, that didn't go over so good with the religious leaders of the day. Then he passes by a fig tree. He passes by a fig tree and it's got leaves on it but no fruit. And he looks at it and he says, this fig tree will never make fruit again. And there, right in front of his disciples, it withers. And he goes on to say, anything that you pray for or ask for in my name, if you believe, you'll do it. And so he's teaching his disciples. And, and there's the parable of two sons and, the, and, and how tax collectors and, and prostitutes uh, and not the religious elite will turn to Jesus, will turn, will inherit uh, the earth. So he's not making a lot of points uh, with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the the the, the laws, the scri- lawyers, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And he goes on and teaches the parable of the talents and the parables of the wedding banquet. So Jesus is making life very uncomfortable for these Pharisees and these scribes and these Sadducees. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees decide we need to do something to discredit this guy. We need to, we need to get people to not be following him and instead turning back to us because we have, we know, we know what it's all about. And this guy, we've seen these type of people come and go. So they've decided they've got to try to trick him and somehow discredit him. And so the Sadducees, um, try and the Pharisees try. It's interesting. The Pharisees were a religious and political party that had developed a couple centuries before Jesus came and walked on the earth. It had as its main focus the preservation, the preservation of Jewish life and culture against the encroaching Gentile culture particularly Greek culture. And they so esteemed the letter of the law of Moses and were so eager to preserve the oral traditions that they were said to have sprung from the law that they developed a very strict and detailed application of the law for everyday life. They were trying to maintain the status quo. That was their, they believed, uh, and, and I think well-intentioned, although at some point veered off. Their scribes, we hear it say often in the Bible, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were part of this pharisaical group, but they were professional scholars who had studied and taught the law. They were, they were the lawyers of this political group. They held that there were a total of 613 different commandments that could be drawn out of the scriptures. So Moses comes down with ten. A millennium and a half later, we have six hundred and forty-eight. 
six, I'm sorry, 643 laws that can be pulled out of those and from, uh, drawn out of the scriptures. They said that 248 of them were positive, meaning that do this and do that, but that 363 of them were negative, meaning don't do this and don't do that. So there had be, religion had become do's and don'ts. And you can see how that kind of gets things messed up. And So then the Sadducees were another political party and religious party in Jewish culture. They were the ruling party when Jesus came. The Pharisees had not quite, no long, had no longer the authority or the pull. It was now the Sadducees who were um, the ruling party and political class in Jewish culture. Don't you love it when your electronics go crazy? There we go. I'm frozen. Um, so they were, um, <clears throat> there we go. Sorry about that. Wow, they really want nuts. Okay. The Sadducees, as I said, another political part, they rejected the oral traditions of the Pharisees. They, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and there were many other things that they chose that they didn't believe in, and that they were at odds with the Pharisees. They rejected the oral traditions that the Pharisees held to and insisted that people were obligated to, to the commandments as they were written in the books of Moses. But not to the oral traditions handed down by the Jews and their forefathers and as taught by the Pharisees. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus said that these, they were always at odds with each other. They were always butting heads over things. Kind of sounds like the political atmosphere that we live in today, sort of. And don't worry, I'm not going to go political. So, but you can sort of see that some of the stuff that we're dealing with today is not new. Um, that human nature is human nature. And therefore, we tend to get into these clashes. There were even debates within the Pharisees and the group. There were two opposing schools of theology. They argued over which were the heavy commandments and which were the light commandments. And which the heavy commandments, if you didn't follow them... The penalty was death, and the light commandments, it was just imprisonment and, and, and not necessarily death. And so they were really, really wrangling and mismashing uh, the law. They were really, um, really working it, you might say. There were debates um, over which were the ethical and morally significant commandments. So this period, Jesus has walked, has come into um, there in Jerusalem. He finds himself again, as he had through his ministry, at odds with these folks. They, he even had arguments earlier on about wash, why the disciples didn't wash their hands and and so on and so forth. And... They're always at odds with each other. 
So this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time with Matthew chapter 22, beginning at 34, like I said. And this background gives us a little bit of idea of what's happening here. I want you to understand that a decision mentally had been made by both the Sadducees and the Pharisees to do everything they could to discredit Jesus. As I said earlier, they saw him as a threat to who they were and what they taught and the way of life that they'd become very comfortable with. So their goal was to try to corner him and try to get him to mix up his words and try to get him to not be... Um, uh, not be so accurate and, and to, and to get them to the point where they couldn't refuse him or where, where they couldn't, uh, refuse, repudiate what he was saying, excuse me. Matthew 20, 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And I'm sure when the Pharisees got together, they're thinking, man, Jesus put it to those guys. I'm so glad that he put it to those Sadducees. I'm glad he, he got them. He really laid it on them. And then one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law or a scribe, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, he said. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Interesting. We just talked about a couple minutes ago that they had created 613 commandments or rules from the ten that Moses had brought down. And now Jesus says, there's two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I want to take a look for the next few moments at Jesus' response. First of all, the deceptive question. The Pharisees weren't really interested in learning anything. They weren't really interested in being taught by Jesus. They were only interested in trying to discredit him and pull all the people who had begun to follow him Away from him. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, and tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? As I've already said, they weren't really interested in the... It was more of a rhetorical question. It wasn't necessarily given to Jesus because they didn't know the answer. It wasn't given to Jesus because they... You know, they were looking to learn something new from this great teacher. They gave it to him to try to trick him. Their intentions were 
to make a mockery of him and what he was doing. Their intentions were not good, but bad. You see, Jesus, Jesus saw right through what they were saying and what they were doing. But I want to take a minute to think about this a little bit deeper. Some people probably may have taken this opportunity that they had given Jesus to put him in their place. He could have just as easily told them what hypocrites, which he had in the past, but he could have told them right here in, in this moment what fools they were, what nonsense this was that they were doing, all that they were, all, you know, confronted them with what he knew was their attempt to put him in, in what they thought in his place. And it, but instead of making fools of them, instead of trying to uh, do to them what they were trying to do to him, he saw it as an opportunity to teach. He saw it as an opportunity to love. And many times we find ourselves in situations in life where we, we've probably said, man, you're a knucklehead. Don't you know that? Man, why don't you know that? We have a tendency to want to try to, to be condescending in those moments. But for Jesus' truth that he is going, that he has shared with them to become real, he couldn't act that way towards them. He couldn't treat them that way. He couldn't be condescending. Otherwise, his words would have been of no meaning. They would have meant nothing. They would have been no good. They would have just been a lip service. Ah, he's another one of those guys. But Jesus, instead of putting them in their place, took it as an opportunity to maybe one more time try to, try to make it through to them and in love teach them. So let's take a look at Jesus's, what I've entitled my point, second point, the unpretentious answer. Jesus replied to them, love your, love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. You see, Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus was quoting scripture. He was quoting the very scripture that they all had been learned in, that they all knew, that they all had been taught. If you were to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I am the Lord. Those were, those were the Lord's words to Moses. And then if we come ahead, jump ahead to Leviticus chapter 19, Verse 18 says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Then a little bit further down in verse 33, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. 
Of all the things we hear sometimes, the truth is the hardest to hear. Of all the things that we hear, sometimes the truth is the hardest to hear. In this age of relativism, it's, it's become even more difficult to hear and accept truth. And we are often unwilling to speak truth for fear of being labeled intolerant, unloving, uncaring. And there are many illustrations that I'm sure you can think of. A couple popped into my head and I'm not going to... One of them is abortion. We have decided that we have the authority to give and take life when that is God's place. He created life. He can give it. He can take it. Now, I understand there are situations, and I'm not, you know, that, that's, that there are medical things that happen. But it's become too easy to just say it's okay to kill an unborn. Transgender ideology is one example of this. The Bible says that we were created by God as either male or female, biologically. Yet there are those that say God has made a mistake. He's made me wrong. He's not God. He's not God because I know what I am. And it's not as God created me. So, the truth sometimes is hard to hear. But the truth is still the truth. And Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, your mind, and soul. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. The truth is simple. And it's less complicated than we try to make it. Jesus' answer is so complete. He said in verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, there's no third commandment, no fourth commandment, no fifth commandment, he said. All the law and all the commandments hang on these two. If you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, you'll keep the first four of the Ten Commandments. You'll have no other God but God. You'll never make an image or a likeness or bow down to worship it instead of God. You'll never take his name in vain, and you'll honor his Sabbath day. And likewise, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will keep the last six commandments. You'll honor your father and your mother. You'll not murder your neighbor. You'll not commit adultery against your neighbor. You'll not steal from your neighbor. You'll not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you won't covet what belongs to your neighbor. You see, Jesus' answer is a complete one. One that sufficiently covers the whole span of God's law. It's pretty simple. It's pretty easy. So now let's take a look at the implications of Jesus' response. Let's step back and consider these two answers together. There are a couple things that we need to take note of here. 
concerning the answer that Jesus gave to the question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The first is that his answer is authoritative. As, the, as, as, as authoritative as the answer could possibly be. This was not an answer of some philosopher or professor or theologian. His authority extended far beyond even the most learned and pious scholar of the Jewish law. He was in fact the son of God in human flesh. His father is the divine giver of the very commandments he was now commenting on. He surely knows better than anyone what the summary of the law should be. The commandment, he says, is the greatest, is truly the greatest commandment. And next, I want us to recognize how systematically and orderly his answer is. His answer is given in a way that it could be, the only way that it could be given to protect the integrity of God's law. That is, by saying the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all our being, and that the commandment second uh, was to love your neighbor as yourself follows afterwards. If we were to turn those around, they would be very confusing, wouldn't we? We could not, although we may try, we could not love our neighbor as ourselves if we didn't first love God. The other side of it is we could not... We cannot love God with all our heart, with all our mind, and all our soul, and not love our neighbor. They have to go in that order. And you can't go around and say, I love the Lord, the God, with all my heart, and all my mind, and all my soul, and hate your neighbor. Because if you do that, you're not really keeping either of the commandments. Just as you could not say, I love my neighbor's. I don't love God. You see, you have to be able to do one before you can do the second. And that's what Jesus is saying here, and that's what Jesus is telling us here. So what does all of this mean? I've been rambling on now for 25 minutes, 30 I think it means this. To be a follower of Jesus and his teachings, we have to love God and we have to love our neighbors. Now, it's real easy to say that we love God. You know, we really can't. You know, other than our attendance at church and our living out of the disciplines of the Christian life, most people can't really tell if you're a Christian. But your neighbors could tell if you are. A gentleman walked into the to a to a the yard of an Amish man and asked him, Are you a Christian? And his response to him was Ask my neighbors. Kind of hits home, doesn't it? Are you a Christian? Ask my neighbors. Jesus had already shared this truth 
of his answer to the expert in the law with his disciples when they were together in the upper room. In John 13, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's pretty straightforward. And he had just re-emphasized it to the leaders, to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the Sadducees who had come to put a halt to his teaching and his ministry. To be a Christian is to be a Christ follower. To be a Christ follower is to be a lover. A lover of God and a lover of people. Jesus invites his followers into a new way of life. A kingdom life ruled by love. If we really believe that loving one another is the real measure of our devotion and love for Jesus, then everything we do and the decisions we make must be governed by this commandment. During the pandemic, um, I, I don't know, maybe we're still in it. I'm trying to pretend I'm not. But uh, early on, when we weren't allowed to be together or in church, um, we would watch uh, Rick Harvey, not the guy that does, uh, what's that show? Steve Harvey. Not Steve Harvey, he does others. Rick Harvey, he's the pastor of Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Our daughter and son-in-law attend that church, and so during the pandemic, we were watching that church with them. And one day, he made a comment in a sermon, and I honestly can't tell you what or remember exactly what he said and what the what the the big idea of his message was. But he made this comment. He said, "What does love require of me?" And that's kind of stuck with me. I've had, I, I've had trouble shaking that one. You know, I've had trouble shaking that from the idea of this passage of Scripture that says to love God and to love my neighbor. And therefore, I should ask myself, what does love require of me in everything that I do? in the relationships that I have, in the situations that I find myself. And so I put it this way for me. I said in all of my actions and decisions of life, I should be asking myself, what does love require of me in this moment? It should be the measuring stick that all our actions and decisions are measured against. It should be the measuring stick of which our relationship with our wives and our children and our extended family. It should be the measuring stick for our business dealings and the work we do and the things that we are part of. Our plans and our strategies should be measured by this question, I believe, what does love expect of me 
in these decisions, in these times, in these days. We're living in tough times. There's a lot of, I, I hate to, it's a, it's, hate's a strong word, but I think there just seems to be a lot of it floating around out there. And we all have seen it on the television, maybe experienced it in our lives. Jesus saw it in his day. He was on the receiving end of a lot of it. Yet he chose to say to his disciples, which we read from John 13, and also to those Pharisees and those Sadducees who had come to discredit him, it all boils down to this. Love God and love your neighbor. There's really not a lot of else. If you're doing those things and doing them in those orders, God will be honored in the way that you live your life. And so I'm not just up here saying this because I wanted to come here and throw darts at anybody because that's where I'm at in my life. I can do better. I can be better. And I need to be reminded. And that's what has happened here as I've spent these last few weeks in this passage of Scripture. God is telling me I can do better. Love me, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your being. And then love your neighbors like you love yourself. That's my challenge today for you, to think about that. I'm not pointing fingers. Because if I'm pointing fingers, there's three pointing back at me. Excuse me, there's a mic right there. (laughs) I appreciate you taking time to listen this morning. It's good to be here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the truth. Sometimes it's hard to hear. Other times, um, maybe not so much. Thank you that it's a simple truth that reveals to us your desire for us as we live out our lives in relation to you and in relation to those around us. May we be thinking about this scripture the next time we're with a friend or we're in a business situation or that we are in church, a board meeting, Sunday school class. Help us to love you and in turn to love our neighbors. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this church and these people. Bless them, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.